Welcome to Speaking Out. We're mainly discussing land rights and economic empowerment. Aboriginal enterprises in mining, exploration and energy. I just to talk a little bit about uh, Indigenous constitutional recognition. With Larissa Berendt. It's a fresh view coming on ABC Radio. I think it's about trying to bring together two narratives, two worldviews that continuously seem to be in conflict. We've got two views of Australia's history. We've got the First Australians or First Nations people. It's similar the world over for those countries that have colonial histories. Truth-telling is recognising that, one, to understand what that truth is, you've got to hear it. You've got to hear what's being said. If it comes from an older generation of people whose experiences tell us what that was like, it's important that this may be the only opportunity that we have because a lot of the stuff that they talk about is not written, but it's shared as well as handed down through successive generations about the experiences of an older generation who have either been moved off country, located on missions and reserves, living and growing up on welfare, at the hands of governments and the many policies in relation to what they consider to be in the best interests of Aboriginal people. A significant cultural project on Songlines brings together some key thinkers in the cultural and education space. This is Speaking Out. I'm Larissa Berendt. Thank you for joining me for Speaking Out's first show in 2023. It's wonderful to be back. And taking a leaf from Wesley Enoch's book, we're not going to concentrate on the divisiveness of January 26, but take a moment to reflect on what the country was like before 1788. To do that, we're looking at an important cultural research project. Songlines of Country is an oral history and multimedia project that tracks three significant songlines, including the Creation Spirit and the Seven Sisters and their travelling routes. This culturally important major research project is being led by Dr Lorena Barker, a senior lecturer at the University of New England. She has a background as an historian with a focus on oral history. Lorena, wonderful to have you with us on Speaking Out. Tell us where you grew up and who and what shaped your worldviews. I grew up in a little place called Woolmeringle. It's out the back of Burke, so literally out the back of Burke. And who inspired me? I guess it always been my parents, my mum and dad, and my uh, grandparents and great uncles and aunties. They grew me up and I am what I refer to as a campfire kid. So I've learned all my cultural knowledge sitting around the campfire with my great aunts, my grandmothers, my mum, listening to the stories of our history and culture and learning directly from them. I'm going to ask you about your PhD study in a minute because, of course, it flows from that. But I was just wondering, one thing I've always found when I've had the chance to spend some time with you or I've looked at your work is that you obviously do have very strong connection to your culture. And as you said, then you grew up listening to the stories around the campfire. What drew you to want to work in academia when you had such a strong upbringing with the Indigenous knowledge system? My parents are self-taught readers and writers, so they left school at a very early age because they were put out to, to work, to service, and 
one of my grandmothers, she couldn't read or write and she could only write her her name. And my mum's mum, she was self-taught. So they learnt on the missions and reserves and off the backs of jam and um, sauce bottles, how to spell and write. And so they were all self-taught. So they only learnt the three R's in the very limited education that they received on the missions and reserves and on the fringes of white Australian society. My parents and my grandparents always encouraged us that education was important. They always knew that how important education was. So I didn't really have a choice not to go to school. And of course, they would tell us, you know, if you don't go to school, the welfare will come and take you away from us. So they were in my formative years and it was really the support of my extended family that supported me all the way through my my education from primary to secondary and well into my tertiary and now my research. Well, yes, in terms of that pathway, you did go all the way, of course, and completed your PhD. Can you tell us a little bit about what you focused on when you did that major work? I wrote the Murdy history of Woolmeringle, so it's the Aboriginal history, our stories, our history and our culture, and what it was like for us to grow up on country, but also our country, what became a, a major pastoral enterprise from the 1850s, but it has always been a traditional clan territories of the Murrawari people. And so that's where I grew up, on what was called the camp, and it used to be two paddocks that was converted into settlement area for what would have been the Aboriginal camps for the workers of the station. So we maintained our connection to Murawari country as workers and important pastoral ants, shearers and shearers cooks and boundary riders on Wollmeringle station. One of the things I love about it is, of course, these were the stories you heard growing up and then it became a major part of your research. And now, of course, those stories are collected for generations going forward. What was it like doing a formal study of things that had come so naturally to you? Initially, it was tough, really interviewing family and community members and trying to find educated in the Western framework. And then going out, talking to my community members, doing oral history interviews, I really had to unpack oral history and what that means in the Western sense as a methodology. And then what is oral history? It's part of who we are. And often Aboriginal people, we take it for granted because we live it every single day of our lives because oral history is part of our cultural makeup. And I struggled with that in the initial stages. My first oral history interviews with community members in Burke. And I didn't like the sound of my own voice. I didn't like how I set up the interviews and I could hear that all on the recording. And from those initial recordings, then I just started really changing my methodology and applying more cultural appropriate methodologies, hanging out more with community and listening and yarning and conducting interviews in places that they felt comfortable and really spending time so it didn't matter if I spent four weeks in the community on in my first oral history research fieldwork. It was more hanging out, giving the community members opportunity to get to know me as an adult, not as that little girl that grew up in the community, but to develop new relationships with community members. So I really had to unpack that 
and kind of worried about it for a long period of time in the initial stages of my PhD. It often strikes me that when we see First Nations people come into academia like you have, it's not just about bringing in the voices and the stories that have been overlooked. But as you say, it's also about changing the methodology and the way that research is done, which I think is for the better and no doubt has given you a framework within which to tackle this important project that you're doing now. So tell us, how did the Songlines project come about? Songlines has been years in the making. It's through many smaller projects, working with community members from my PhD days and then more so in the creative community projects that I received external funding for. So from the Looking Through Windows project, which was a multimedia exhibition, I brought together artists, community elders, so we held a series of on-country elders gatherings and that focused on Aboriginal people's lives on the missions and reserves and on the fringes of white Australian society and the movement of our peoples, particularly in New South Wales, from country onto these places of control. So we had gatherings, and from that gathering, uh, their stories were um, transformed into multimedia, so into poetry, into song, into creative arts. And so the artists that worked with me, both Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal artists, we created the Looking Through Windows exhibition, which toured around Brie Warner. We took it home. It showed in Redfern. It was from that and having contacts and conversations and yarning with elders. At the same time, there was the major Songlines project that the elders had heard about that was on show in Canberra, and they were talking in those sessions about our Seven Sisters song lines and why hadn't somebody come and talk to them about the song lines. So it was from those conversations I started articulating what I was hearing from my elders and community members in Western New South Wales, and um, that's how the song lines started and getting endorsements and support from directly from the elders wanting to tell our stories of the song lines and how the seven sisters, when they pass through our country on their journey into the sky, that we also will be following their song lines as well. Song lines of country tracks three significant song lines. So we're tracking water snakes, what the Adnamutna people call the Akaras from the Flinders Ranges and their journeys over into the corner country around Tipperborough. And then as they journey further into the Darling River, into the Barker system and where the, the water snakes separate and when one goes south and one goes north and we'll follow the water snakes when they become the Nachis, the, the Barkanji word for the water snakes, and then we follow the snake that travels north and becomes the Wawai in Niamba country around Brewarana and then up into the Colgoa along the the Nadu, um, which would be the Colgoa River at Woolmeringal and the Murugwari people call the water snake the Mundagata. So as well as we track the seven sisters where their paths cross over and they intersect and the, the sites of significance of the Seven Sisters within that massive region. And we also track Biami, the great creator, 
as he journeys from a place called Gundabuka to a place called Bayrock and then over to the fish traps by Amis Nunu at Brewana. And that's where the Songlines Project finishes. One of the things that you know, I think is wonderful about it when you tell the story about how it came about is that your research really is responding to what the community wanted to have a say about it. That community-led research is wonderful. As you've gone along and tracked these song lines, what have you discovered? What have been some of the revelations for you? I guess when you go deep into to our culture and you work directly with our cultural knowledge holders, our elders, you get to see things only privileged few get to see. And once you see those things or hear those things, you can't unhear or unsee them. And it changes everything. Your old idea of Aboriginal culture, history and knowledge. And I guess that's what I've been privileged to. And my team, both the research team and the community researchers that we take out on country and to sit with elders to be on their country, to listen to their stories and some of which when we have permission to be able to share some of that knowledge, it's life-changing. It changes everything, your whole idea of what you might have thought Aboriginal culture is if when you see some of the stuff that community will allow you to see, some of the stuff that we, of course, won't be able to write or show on the documentary film that we're open to make. But it's always difficult. It's quite um, gives me goosebumps to even think about some of the stuff that I've seen and heard over the last few years. And it has really impacted and changed the way my approach to research and really listening and responding to the research and that our communities want and need. I just wonder too, obviously this, as you mentioned, is a project that came out of the community wanting to tell their stories. What have you observed from their reaction and what it's meant for them to have this opportunity to engage in the project and to have a forum where those stories are being heard and recorded? They're very excited so the Adnamatna elders who myself and our community research team have direct kinship relationships with the, the Adnamatna, they've always been very excited about it. And we took a group of 28, almost 30 elders, cultural knowledge elders, into the South Australian Museum and to the State Library in Adelaide. And they looked at the cultural materials that are housed in those institutions so they got to listen to some of the recordings and request copies of items, but also knowing what is in the archives and the stories and the knowledge that the old people left behind, but also how powerful it is for them to then make decisions about who has access to that material. And we would have gone back this month again to do another community meeting, to have another community meeting with the Adnamutton elders, but because of the floods and the um, unpredictable nature of the weather at the moment, we had to postpone it until early next year. But they are very excited about taking the journey. So as part of the Songlines of Country, there will be an actual journey that we will take in August next year. There will be particular elders that will come out on the day. So we'll start that journey in, in Nipabana, uh, in the northern Flinders Ranges, near Lee Creek, 
and we'll journeyed from there over to Tipperborough and meet up with the other language groups. So they're excited being able to to gather. And in a in a way it'll be gathering like that we had gathered in the corner country traditionally when all the tribes came together for ceremony. And so Onlines is also the gatherings and bringing people together is also based on our cultural gatherings, how we gathered originally for ceremony and for song and to pass on knowledge of the song lines. And so they're really excited and it is trying to then link up with all the language groups in New South Wales on that path, on that journey to the fish traps. It's a wonderful way that this research is sort of reweaving the social fabric Is there a way that people can find out about the project? We've got a Facebook page called Songlines of Country and we also have a website. It's under the Tarragara Aboriginal Corporation, which is a community organisation that was formed as a result of all the work with community. And they host our website as well, details about the research, about all the community projects. So they are the partner organisation with the University of New England and other funding bodies. And Tarragara Aboriginal Corporation, you can see most of our research that are on that website. Some of the community research projects, the creative arts projects, we will have our online gallery, which Tarragara hosts, and the looking through windows will be shown will be launched as an online exhibition the first week of December as part of the Peace Conference here at the University of New England. Just finally, Lorena, I wonder if you could just share what your advice would be for First Nations people who are listening to you about your research and who are perhaps then interested in working in the tertiary sector or the research space and doing this kind of work with their communities. You've forged a bit of a pathway here. What's your advice for people who might want to follow in those footsteps? I guess my advice is really has come from my mum and my grandparents. They've always told me to, you know, you always do your best no matter what. You just give something a go. And if it doesn't work out, it's okay. You can always come back home. You can always go back to your community. Your family's always there. And Education, what I've found, is once you go through the system, it is hard. It's not easy. It is often a lonely journey. But once you have reached those echelons, the world is your oyster. And then it is with those all those skills that you've gathered over the years, that knowledge you've been given by your family and community members, then you're in a position to transform and create those cultural methodologies that you've learnt from that very young age and can then start changing things from within the academic institutions, within the educational structure. But for me, it has always been first and foremost listening and hanging out with my family and community members and to always remain grounded and never too far away from my community, even though I live and work in the ivory tower of the university. Dr. Lorena Barker, it's been such a privilege to have you on Speaking Out, spending some time with us and sharing this really important research. Thank you. Thanks for the opportunity. Dr. Lorena Barker is leading the Songlines of Country Project and is a senior lecturer at the University of New England.
Speaking out with Larissa Barron. The knowledge, the culture, the arts, the language, the law and customs of Indigenous people. On ABC Radio. This is Speaking Out on ABC Radio, Radio National, Radio Australia on podcast and the ABC Listen app. I'm Larissa Berendt and if you like what you're hearing, why not rate us on your app and that way other people can find us and hear our stories as well. The Songlines Project talks to our connectedness across country and it has brought together some leading educators, researchers and thinkers. One of those is Michael Brogan and he'll join me shortly. But first, a song from Mitch Tambo and a First Nations interpretation of an iconic Australian tune. Here is You're the Voice.
Mitch Tambo's wonderful rendition of You're the Voice. I love hearing that in language. Michael Brogan is also involved with the Songlines of Country project. With a long history of working in the education sector, Michael has a lifelong engagement in community work. Michael, welcome to Speaking Out. Now tell us a bit about where you grew up and what has shaped your worldview. Thank you for having me. I was adopted, so I've been living and growing up in mainstream pretty much all my life. I haven't lived and worked on country, especially in my mother's country, which is Kigari, Fraser Island. So I grew up in cities here in Australia and around the world. I spent most of my formative years growing up in London. We returned to Australia in the late 70s. And in many ways, my interaction and engagement with Aboriginal community was limited. But in many ways, my encounters with Aboriginal people and culture was primarily through media, films, texts. But of course, once I left school, I started to engage with Aboriginal people. It's not to say that they weren't around. It's just that they weren't part of the social environments in which I grew up. It's interesting and unusual journey in a lot of ways that you've had where you were overseas for such a period of time and then have come back, but you're so closely connected to the community now. What was that journey back home and back to the community and back to that part of, of yourself like? Well, when I finished my first degree in uh, visual and performing arts, I moved back to Sydney and uh, I had started work at Film Australia, where I did a one-year cadetship. I produced a program for schools and the National Education Program in relation to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people and culture. I worked with a fellow colleague, Errol Sibisato, from WA. So we were both kind of out of university. We were both trainees in an environment where government films became an encounter with Aboriginal people and culture. And in many ways, it also exposes to kind of a colonial narrative of the way in which mainstream society and culture viewed Aboriginal people and culture as well. So from that experience, I think it is that producing a program for a national education program or for schools and education gave us a real insight to understanding uh, what that was all about in terms of giving Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people a voice in the f- many films that we viewed in the year that we made that program. It was during that time that I was also approached to taking a job at the Eora Centre in Sydney to work as a photographer, filmmaker and artist and to work with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander students, bearing in mind that up until that point, it was important for me to understand what my past was in relation to my mother, dare I say, my birth mother. So I made contact with her three days before I started work at the centre. We hadn't met in the whole time that I'd been adopted, right through to the day that I got the job at the Eora centre. So it was about bringing my past into the present but recognising that it was important to understand who my family was, what our history was, and what that might mean for the many students that I was going to be teaching through that educational facility. I worked there for about 10 years. When I returned to Australia, uh, for me, my first day at Eora was a cultural shock to me, uh, both personally and professionally. 
as I had uh, previously stated. My interaction and engagement with Aboriginal people face-to-face was limited. So my first day at Eora was very much the beginnings of a, a kind of jarring between myself and the students that I worked with in the years that I was at the Eora Centre. So fascinating to hear about all of these threads of your life, really. When I come back to that time at Eora, but I guess I was interested to know from you, you've obviously been very drawn to creative practice and storytelling and that space that you mentioned that you were interested in, the space for other people to tell their stories. But obviously teaching and education are also a very important project for you in a way. Eora brings those together, the work that you did there in that creative space, but teaching people how to how to enter that space and, and use their own creativity. And I wonder if you've had any reflections on why those two things have been so important to you. I suppose living and growing up in the mainstream and, of course, moving and travelling in relation to my parents' personal and professional growth in those sectors. The educational sector is something that I don't think I've ever really been away from. I think it is that sort of my experiences of recognising what my own parents did working in that environment as teachers and as academics kind of influenced the path I eventually took myself. So I kind of recognise my own experiences in relation to being a student, being a teacher, being an academic and now a researcher. So that you could say there are kind of phases in relation to my professional life as well as my life world of living and growing up as an Aboriginal person in the mainstream. So my encounters with students in relation to the setting in which we were working, interacting and engaged in relation to the art processes was about uncovering revealing, exploring our life worlds and kind of acknowledging too that for many students that I worked with, the education system had failed them. However, the processes that we worked with enabled them to build and construct as well as give expression to their own voice, their own worldview and their experiences of living and growing up. Aboriginal in Australia. And I suppose that was also the difference between ourselves. My experiences of growing up in London, of course, is quite different to the experiences of many of the kids growing up, say, in Redfern or growing up in Armidale, which is where I now live. So I suppose that our discussions or the talks that we had between ourselves was trying to get an idea and a sense of who each other were. And that was very important to be a good teacher. It's about being able to enable your students to recognise who you are, as well as keeping it real, recognising that our lives may be very different, but we have an opportunity to work together to learn and understand diversity within the worlds in which we live, both as Aboriginal people, professionals, as well as individuals working in an educational environment to give them an opportunity to see their world through their own strengths. Art, music, theatre kind of relate to original knowledge systems that have been 
in operation for over 60,000 years. So we were kind of working from strengths there in terms of being able to give students an opportunity to find that voice through the creative process. It strikes me listening to you that there's a process of working with people to find that voice, to appreciate that diversity is is a ways in which we are reweaving our social fabric as a community. And of course, that is a big part of the work that you're doing with the Songlines of Country Project too. What's been your reflection on how culture is being regenerated? Well, working with Lorena, of course, being invited to come on board as a researcher on that project. But more importantly, Lorena and I have been working in the same institution for a long period of time. We come from different backgrounds. But I suppose that um, for me, working on this particular project, as working uh, at the University of New England, for example, I'm only as effective having listened to my students. They keep it real for me in in the sense that it's from their worldview, from their stories, their experiences that allow me to effectively navigate as well as uh, operate both within the educational space and, and the community with which we work. Most of the people that we are currently working with are primarily Lorena's relations. So I suppose that my interaction and engagement with them has come from the experiences of working in educational settings like Eora, as well as the University of New England, where most of the work that I was doing was kind of focused on open access programs. So we were meeting and talking with many students that were coming back into the educational system to improve, if not upskill themselves, to be able to do further studies. That way, I think it is that through that engagement, the work that I do on the Song Nines project comes from having, in many ways, learned from my students to be an effective listener, as well as an effective operator in terms of meeting the needs of the communities in which I'm working with. strikes me you've had quite a long time to, I guess, observe the educational space. And I just wonder what your reflections are, especially sort of from the time at Eora and the sorts of backgrounds and issues and barriers that your students there would have had. And now in the tertiary sector space, you mentioned that, you know, there's still a process of students adjusting or having to work with them to find their way through. But what's your reflection in terms of what you've seen that has been the positive changes and what are still some of the barriers in this space? I think one of the things that is quite obvious that when meeting and working with many of the students I have in the years that I've been located within the educational field or the educational setting or the institutions in which I'm working, kind of reveal we're having conversations they've never had before. And when a student turns around and sort of no one's ever talked to me like that, no one's ever enabled me to speak, I'm always being told what to do or what's in my best interests. So opening a door or possibly opening a window for the first time. I think it is that when many of the students that I've worked with talk about 
previous educational experiences, they talk about being the invisible kid in the classroom, that their interaction and engagement um, with the teachers was limited, or it may simply be that many teachers in the uh, years that they were at school didn't really know how to interact and engage with the realities of the situation and the circumstances in which they were growing up. And I mean that in the in the sense that we're now talking about what it is to be living and working off country. And in many ways that becomes a concept to understanding of dispossession or that dislocation, this idea that Aboriginal kids themselves uh, are no longer seen or perceived to having any culture at all, when in fact, regardless of your situation and circumstances, it is that saying to students, you are culture, and to remind them culture is fluid, just as it is to understand what has occurred over the last 230 years of European occupation here in Australia. When you look at those conversations, what you're needing to connect your students with, your involvement with the Songlines of Country project is a way in which you're bringing culture up from country and actually engaging members of the Aboriginal community in research outside of the walls of the institution. From your perspective, what are the things that you hope a project like this will achieve? What ground is it breaking and what do you hope the legacy will be? Well, I suppose that in many ways that the role and function I have within the project is knowing that I am comfortable in the institutions in which we bring community in to look at the archives or in many ways visit places like the Australian Museum, the State Library in South Australia, I suppose the Museum in um, South Australia as well. One might say that living and growing up in the mainstream, it is that I am a product of the institutions in which I have been educated myself. So I suppose that in some ways that is important in terms of making the communities that we're working with comfortable about being in those environments. But I think more significantly, conversations that we're having is recognising that Aboriginal history and the evidence of that history goes back thousands and thousands and thousands of years. And we have encountered that evidence. We have seen that evidence And that evidence is still part of many of the stories that are told by many of the people that we work with. So that connection to the past is relative to the connection we have to country because the events that have occurred in those places are the ones that tell us about ourselves, our history and our past. And it's not broken. There are just disruptions It's recognising that listening is important to understanding their objectives and why they're doing this work, as well as the invitation to be invited to work on this project as well. Just feel that there's so much in what you do that is about how to strengthen the community and 
think everyone who works in the education space is sort of working towards better outcomes for our people in a myriad of ways. But there's something particularly about the things that you've focused on and the way that you engage as an educator that really does reflect heavily on the concept of truth-telling. And at this moment where we're talking about voice, treaty and truth, I wonder if you could share with us what your views are on the importance of a truth-telling process. I think it's about trying to bring together two narratives, two worldviews that continuously seem to be in conflict. We've got two views of Australia's history. We've got the First Australians or First Nations people. It's similar the world over for those countries that have colonial histories. Truth-telling is recognising that, one, to understand what that truth is, you've got to hear it. You've got to hear what's being said. If it comes from an older generation of people whose experiences tell us what that was like, it's important that this may be the only opportunity that we have because a lot of the stuff that they talk about is not written, but it's shared as well as handed down through successive generations about the experiences of an older generation who have either been moved off country, located on missions and reserves, living and growing up on welfare, and so on and so on and so on, at the hands of governments and the many policies that they've worked on, reworked, continue to rework in relation to what they consider to be in the best interests of Aboriginal people. We often hear many Aboriginal people say they're not listening And I think it is that, is this the right time? Statement from the heart, it is an opportunity to hear for the first time the worldviews of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people.
That's the show for this week. It's great to be back for another year. Join us again next week when we'll bring you more stories from First Nations across Australia. This episode of Speaking Out was produced by Jay McAllister and you can email the program speakingout at abc.net.au and find us on social media via ABC Indigenous. I'm Larissa Berendt.